The brothers wish. The brothers wish, brothers wish. The brothers wish. The brothers. You're now listening to Greg. It's the brothers wish. Hey everybody, this is Greg with Brothers Wish number 142. I am coming at you live in person on the internet. So do, I mean, is anything even real or in person anymore? Um, I'm coming from Texas. This is College Station, Texas, uh, where it is still sweltering, but at least it's mostly dry. So good to go. I've got uh, one Nick Arellano today from somewhere in BFE, Illinois, correct? Somewhere in Illinois. Or Illinois. That's how you guys Yeah, we it. have uh, Hard heat, but it's humid. Very humid. <laughs> More like humid than humid? 15 to 20 degree increase with the humidity. So it's been disgusting outside. Fantastic. Well, you don't go outside anyway, so what's the difference? No, no. <laughs> I try to stay away from out there. All right, there's people there. It's terrifying. They want to talk to you, ask you questions, ask you if you found your Lord and Savior. Don't have time for All that. Right, I'm like, I just got to stay inside. <laughs> that, uh, it reminds me, I think, of an episode of Seinfeld where uh, uh, somebody was bragging to Jerry that uh, they had their garage air condition. And uh, mm-hmm. he goes, oh, so you can literally never breathe fresh air ever again. And the guy goes, yeah, it's great. <laughs> fantastic all right well we don't have a lot of topics on here so hopefully uh nick is ready to just make stuff up and vamp as we go (laughs) oh here we go (laughs) all right so our sponsor today is towercoverage.com tower coverage is your rf propagation system to empower your network real-time data metrics enable your coverage area reaching your customer base and more the rf industry's best rf propagation mapping system allows website integration for customer signup and pre-qualification Use this data to scientifically plan network expansion and help your WISP succeed. Get a free trial today at towercoverage.com. We also have a couple of new patrons, and that is patreon.com forward slash your brother's wish. Those couple of bones. Supporters, you get access to the patron only Slack. Let's go around. We have Albert Kakasian. Kakashian? Caucasian? He's Greek. Albert, Albert, the Greek guy, uh, <laughs> our first Greek guy. God bless. I think people sign up just to hear me butcher their names. Uh, then we have Ben Corman. So I, I'm pretty sure I nailed that one. Um, I can't recall where Ben's from, but Albert's Greek. So there you have it. Uh, a lot of good uh, discourse in there back and forth. I've actually been following a couple of threads. I've especially watching the, the Terragraph thread between um, Chad and... Uh, the guy in Bermuda, what's his name? I forget. Is it Artie? Artie, there you are. Really nice guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've uh, they've both been doing a lot of telegraph stuff, and it's interesting to watch them like compare notes back and forth. And Chad will say, "You know, I'm seeing this stuff," and then uh, Artie will be like, uh, "Let me check. Oh, you know what? I'm seeing that too." And so it's it's just interesting to kind of see them sort of go through the process. So that's one of the ones I've been uh, watching, and then another one kind of came up, which I guess I could talk about a little bit. It was sort of a Chad thing. Uh, Chad Brochills, but he's not here, but we can still pretend to uh, have him in the room and talk about that. Anyway, I digress. Uh, what was some of the new stuff that came out? We're looking at Microtech RouterOS version 7.1. Everybody knows that it's a beta, except that they just released uh, Release Candidate 1. Release Candidate. No. Getting closer. That's right. Some people were surprised that a Release Candidate came out so fast. But uh, 
here we are. What do you think about it? What are your uh, your thoughts, feelings? We're closer to we're closer to a stable version seven. Uh, I thought it was interesting too because they had a beta um, seven point one beta seven that they just skipped and went to release candidate. I still have yet to try it. Um, I got beta seven from Microtik support because I wanted to test the MLAG stuff. Um, so, so sometime this week I'm probably gonna load it on these CRS three seventeens that I have in the lab just to see um, how the release candidate works. But everything on beta 7 worked pretty good. I didn't do a lot of routing testing, just MLAG primarily, because that's really what I want to use pretty quick here. But there's not a whole lot of stuff in here. Um, I was hoping they'd be a little more verbose than you know, minor fixes and improvements. There was a couple things that some people brought up that I'm wondering if it got fixed in here and they just didn't list it, but that was kind of interesting. It's a, it's a short little release change log. It's very short. I mean, we're looking at like 10 entries here. Mm -hmm. um, nothing that like looks crazy insane. It says other minor fixes and improvements. So, <laughs> I mean, that could constitute uh, 50 things or it could constitute five things. You never really know. So, Or improve general stability and performance. That's another yeah. nice vague one. Yeah, that's another big sort of blanket statement, which uh, traditionally in the past, whenever they've been doing their... Um, their long-term and their stable releases, they've been uh, very verbose with the change logs. Maybe in the beta stuff, it's a little bit more fast and loose, I guess. Well, I mean, yeah, with other minor fixes as well as general stability. Yeah, yeah, it's, they're a little bit faster and looser, so that makes sense. Um, they were talking about some new Winbox version 3.29 required for some of the stuff in this release candidate. Uh, what were other things people were talking about? IPv6 NAT. Is added in here, which is that's uh, in there. Yeah, <laughs> I know there's gonna be some people rolling in their graves here and that, uh, but uh, we'll uh, I don't know. Look forward to playing with any of these features and functionality. I've kind of been, you know, it's sort of a chicken or egg scenario. I've been sort of waiting for the routing to get a little bit more stable before I start playing with it, but. The routing's not going to get a little bit more stable until people start playing with it and finding the bugs. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I guess there's I, a lot missing just on the wiki page. If you look at at feature completeness, there's still a lot of just stuff missing. Um, so most of the people who would want to test it to put it through production workloads, not that you should because it's beta, but you kind of need to to get it out of beta. But uh, there's still a lot of stuff missing. I did. It was interesting that there's hardware offloaded support. For VLAN filtering on the 4011 and 1100 AH. Just, I just noticed that. Hardware offload support for VLAN filtering. That's interesting. I guess you configure that and it'll push it down to the switch chip. I think, didn't mm -hmm. there used to, there used to be, I don't know if it was hardware support, but you could do switch filtering, not necessarily VLAN filtering, but switch filtering. And it would only allow you to do up to a certain number of those. To me, that said, it probably was pushing those through the chipset, right? Something like that. Like bridge Yeah, filter. usually when there's a limitation, that means uh, there's only so many that the chipset supports offloading to. Um, I never really looked too much, you know, since the 4011 and the 1100 have a pretty decent CPU. I haven't really had to do much, like, bridge-level filtering or VLAN filtering stuff on those. Usually it just... Um, it, it trunks the VLANs like in a router on a stick, so I don't really have to like use the filtering part. I thought it was interesting that they added that now, but they're also going to be basically killing that router with the 5009. 
I don't know. It's I'm sure of, they've sold a lot of the 4011 units. They're going to be floating out there for a while, so why not? The 1100HX4 is newish. And I guess if it's using the exact same chipset, you might as well, right? If you're giving that functionality to the one, well, then it's obviously going to be supported by the other. So maybe that's why they bothered to even put the 4011 in there because it's just using the chipset that the other long-term product has in it. Yeah, we've, I've got quite a bit of them out in the field and they do lock up occasionally. Uh, they, they're probably not revision two, but I'm really excited for the 5009. We'll probably replace all of those with the 5009. I think everybody is. Are you, uh, what's the most surprising thing about the 5009 for you? Uh, the form factor. <laughs> yeah. So the way size. that they, they structured it to do four and one U is kind of crazy. So, um, also the the onboard like DC terminal for power was pretty nice. Um, a lot of the tower boxes in the field are all pretty much DC powered. So being able to just instead of using a DC barrel pigtail, we can actually fasten the wires into the terminal. Um, the switch chip, especially though, um, just looking at the switch chip compared to the 4011, like you can push a lot more bandwidth through the 5009. So it's kind of all around better. Uh, now that they've been making those improvements, but it's V7 only, so mm. there's going to be some interop things that I'm going to have to test to try to like bring those into the network while I've got a bunch of V6 routers out there still when that day comes. I think I was most surprised by the price. Yeah. The amount of performance uh, it's pretty that, crazy. that that little box has, that the fact that it's going to come in close to 200 bucks, that's pretty bonkers. And we're probably not going to get them for at least another year, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, with chip shortages. There's a shortage. I want to get like eight of them and two used to build a little V7 lab for testing. But I don't even know when I'm going to be able to throw my money at them. <laughs> yeah, right. Take my money. Um, I was yeah. seeing that uh, some automotive manufacturer, what was it, like Bosch or somebody like that, which I didn't even know was associated with the automotive industry, was talking about how um, this is basically trash and we need to, you know, split off that kind of manufacturing. I mean, obviously if, you know, a huge source of the world's uh, supply of something comes from a single factory, it's probably not a great mm -hmm. idea. And I don't, I mean, I was gonna say, I don't know how they went this long with it this way, but it probably makes sense that, uh, it was cheaper to do it this way and it would cost them time and money to explore their options. Mm -hmm. I, but you know, in it, we talk about disaster recovery all the time. And part of that is calculating, uh, what's it going to cost us if this thing breaks? And obviously somebody did the math on that and just determined that it was uh, an acceptable risk, unfortunately. It's never going to happen. No, no. All of these crazy things would have There's to no come way. together uh, to make this happen. So it's not, it's not probable. Such is life. Wacky wild. All right. Well, that's all I had for the Microtik stuff. Next thing I had was Unify Talk. Did you look at that at all? I did, uh, and I actually was thinking even before they had some phone offerings that they were going to end up pushing into this since they're basically trying to own the entire um, like small-medium enterprise, if you want to call it, which I don't think some of the equipment belongs in a larger enterprise, but you'd figure they would want to own it end-to-end. -end. They want to own the routing, the switching, the access, the cameras, the VoIP. I mean, they're... They're doing a lot of stuff like that to cover um, basically the whole market so that you can have like a one-stop shop for everything. 
mm. which is kind of interesting. Even on the ISP side, um, if you look at their new design tool, they actually have bandwidth you can lease from towers. And so I think like all the industries are hitting, they're trying to fill in all these different like niches of technology and phones kind of make sense, especially if they can um, work it all into like the access stuff under like one pane of glass. Um, it is interesting. I think they were going to be trunking minutes. I'd have to look at the details Yeah. So it, of everything. And this isn't Unify's or rather I should say Ubiquiti's first foray into VoIP stuff. I think this is their third stab at it. I want to say, because I think they did some VoIP stuff and then deprecated it or no. Yeah. Deprecated it. Then, um, I think a few years later they threw out another few phones. And I remember talking to somebody who was using some of the phones to register their own SIP servers. And they're like, yeah, they're fine. They seem okay. Um, but this third one, the unified talk looks like they've got a traditional looking desk phone. One that's less traditional. That's more like an iPad style phone and then one that looks more like a phone with an iPhone attached, then I'm assuming that's an ATA. And then it looks like the last option might be like a conference room phone that looks like a Unify access point oh, wow. sitting on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sitting on, you know, just upside down on its base. Um, but really the interesting piece here is that they're saying that it's a hosted service, right? At no point do they talk about, hey, this is a SIP phone that you can connect to your own services. They're saying it's 10 bucks a month per line for your phones and what a great value that is. And they just talk to you about uh, 3,000 combined inbound outbound minutes per month. They talk about qualifying. For like it, 10 bucks. Yeah, yeah. They talk about qualifying, all that stuff. Um, if you've ever used a SIP phone with a, a service like VoIP.ms, you know that 10 bucks a month is probably what double what you're going to pay if you were to just roll your own sort of thing, like using one of those services. Um, uh, I, okay. So normally Mike's the one who uh, goes down the, uh, the negative hole, but here I'm just going to put on my, uh, uh, my, what am I, my devil's advocate hat, I guess, and say, this is another ubiquity hosted solution right? It's connecting to their servers out in the cloud. So it raises the question, how long will this service be available? Um, you know, is it just going to magically disappear one day? And then you've got all these uh, hard pieces of hardware that you can't do anything with. Uh, another thing that pops into mind is what kind of support is going to be available for this stuff? Because traditionally yeah. getting support for Ubiquity products has been best effort. I guess is that the a nice way of saying that. So if you're paying for a hosted solution, I sure as heck want to get a hold of somebody uh, quick, fast, and in a hurry. You know, if I've got customers having problems and it's reliant on your services, I want to be able to get a hold of that. And also it makes me wonder about the infrastructure they've built to support this because they had a hack not so long ago on some of their hosted mm -hmm. cloud services and kind of came to light that it was really just barely put together with chewing gum and duct tape and very little security on that infrastructure. And it makes you wonder about uh, high availability. What are their backups like on their infrastructure? You know, how much failover capability does this service have? It, but you know what? Maybe they're just white labeling somebody else's service. And, you know, it's really a robust system on the back end. So I, there's so many unknowns with this. I just don't really know. So 
it makes me have more uh, questions than uh, answers, I suppose. What's your what's your read on this? Yeah, I've done a lot of work with David for Pennytone mm-hmm. as far as like PBX work and uh, especially with the the billing side of things and CDR parsing. And so for me, <laughs> the biggest thing here is like they want you to port your numbers to them. But then like what happens if this gets discontinued again? You know, like you could deal potentially with some network outages. You could have an LTE backup or, you know, people are working from home now. But like what happens if something happens to like your office phone number? Or there's an issue with porting. Like some some companies, especially smaller ones, that um, aren't aren't going to be handling their own PBX system or using a more robust system. Because I don't know how like complex or flexible the call routing is going to be with this platform. Um, there's probably going to be a point where this is going to work for a good chunk of small businesses, but once they get more complicated on their time schedules, you're probably going to still need a PBX. Um, but like once you port your numbers to them and um, they kind of own like your phone system, like for some companies, a lot of their business revolves around incoming and outgoing phone calls. So I'm pretty apprehensive, but I think it's uh, a smart direction for them to go to get you all on the platform, especially if they're going to market you when you log into the other Unify systems to try to get you to install the little VoIP add-on if that's how it's going to be or i'm not sure how the setup's going to be looks like it goes on a dream machine or a cloud key but i'm very apprehensive at this point especially for phones and the target um companies that would be a good fit for this type of system it's going to be simple looks pretty and it, they don't have a lot of call routing complexity i could see this going pretty bad for some small businesses if they decide to stop supporting the service so you see this more as who do you think this appeals to? Somebody that has like one little office that does some little thing and they're like, oh, I can take care of like their IT guys. Like, man, if Unify can do all these things. And so it's the the dream of making things simple for them. So they would, oh, mm-hmm. I'll just throw these phones on here too. So you think that's more the target market as opposed to um, like resellers? Because there's a lot of MSPs out there that will push Unify like yeah. access points and stuff. So, yeah, I mean... It depends because a lot of the VoIP services they use now, there's pretty, um, there's pretty handsome like uh, reseller like profit sharing they do. So like they get a percentage of the bill for a lot of other solutions they would sell. Mm. Um, it, this completely would probably come down to the call features, like how much can you actually do with a VoIP platform that just works. So that's what they say. Um, like how much can you do with it? How much call control can you have? Like. Um, if there's any level of complexity, it could be better. But if if there's not a lot going on there and it's pretty simple and you can't do any like complex things that you would need for a lot of like hospital or medical places to have um, varying time schedules. And for some companies, they might need, you know, outages or or messages put up if there's something going on and there's a huge call influx, like being able to go in and toggle those things quickly um, that you can pretty easily do with a, a full PBX system. So. I think it's going to come down to how, how many features uh, are they going to support with this phone system and how easy is it for someone to configure through the software that they're going to provide. Mm. I haven't even looked at any of the offering here other than this is where they're going and some of the products in the store because I, 
I check the store and the updates on the products pretty frequently and skimmed over this a little bit, but we're just going to have to see. I would, I would assume it's going to be more small business. And this fits in with Ubiquity's plans to have, what is it? Is it um, quarterly release of products? Isn't that what they said? Like it, well, they're covering a lot of bases now. Like you've got the door access, you've got cameras, phones, network, but they're also supplementing network with um, like LTE out of band devices that you can just plug in. They've got a whole power solution now that's like the, like the redundant power thing where you can um, hook the back of the devices up to this this unit, and they've got some smarter like IP managed. Uh, power strips to automatically reboot stuff. So they're filling in everything. They've even got um, in the store uh, a small network rack, like 19 inch rack. Hmm. So they're just they're they're doing it all. It's <laughs> interesting, but I guess I mean that's that seems like low hanging fruit too, like a rack. Like that's an easy thing, right? You just probably a lot of margin too if they just yeah. get a bunch of metal bend it yeah. give somebody some basic specifications and say make this thing yeah. and slap the ubiquity logo on it or whatever so that would that would mm. you know if you've got to release something every what every three months uh having little things like that seems like a a quick easy win that makes sense but this i don't know we'll see we'll see what happens we'll see we'll how see. long it lasts maybe we'll uh, actually get some reports of folks using it at some point for stuff like this, what I'm always curious about, uh, you know, like how's this thing doing? When's this coming out? Sometimes I'll reach out to the uh, resellers, you know, like your Baltics, your ISP supplies, and just how many of these units are you moving? Can you talk to anybody that's used these things? Because usually they're going to be the first ones to know. Like right. If they start selling them like crazy or they don't sell them at all or they get interesting reports back one way or the other, like surprising. Sometimes mm -hmm. it works better than you expected and sometimes not. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> it's also kind of interesting too because um, a lot of people are moving to soft phones. So especially with like remote work, like especially now because a lot of people, everyone's working from home. So a lot of people will use like either the Ring Central app or another soft phone app or um, you know a mobile app on their work cell phone that is hooked up to the phone system. So it is kind of interesting that they're doing these um, these hard phones in a world where people are kind of all going soft phone phone based. Even like call centers, they're all, almost all using headsets on a computer with um, call center software or a soft phone. So that's also kind of interesting. Unless they're also going to make a companion app on your phone. Right. It seems like it's easier to put out hardware and support that than it would be a mm -hmm. software product, and then support you know the ever changing landscape of you know. PCs, Macs, phones, all that stuff. Having to maintain all that stuff seems like that would be more work than just. I'm curious. Don't got a piece of hardware. I'm curious if they're going to um, have these phones tunnel out to the service to make it as, because like if, if people are going to work from home and you want to like check one of these phones at someone's desk, I'm curious how seamless it is to um, onboard it and connect it to like the cloud hosting system. Gotcha. Like, cause that, that would probably mitigate that. Like it'll pull an IP and then just create a tunnel out to their service and it'll say, Oh, and then I maybe you model X, Y, Z. This is my serial number and it'll pull its config sort of thing. Yeah. And then, you know, like as an operator, you could go in and, um, you know, add the phone 
or like whoever's managing it, add the phone by the serial number and they're like, oh, that's your phone. And then it puts it under your like tenant or something. I'm curious how that's going to work because that would make it a lot easier to just um, roll this out and ship it to all your employees, have them put it on the desk, just plug it into any old network jack and have them all onboard and provision and get everything set up. If they make that really smooth, it could also be compelling. I know a lot of people who are basically uh, handing out MicroTik routers with VPN tunnels for them to like plug the phone in to get the provisioning to a private PBX for security stuff. So I'm curious how much they're going to do, especially on the security front. Um, a lot of people attack phone services because robocallers want to make free phone calls. I'm curious how that is going to work uh, in their cloud offering, unless um, a lot of their other products use like WebRTC and other encrypted communication protocols. So I'm curious if they're going to have that. I don't know if their phones are WebRTC, if they're actually like SIP and RTP, but I, I imagine they're going to have s similar tunneling mechanisms to try to hopefully mitigate getting their servers attacked and then everyone's phones don't work. That would be pretty terrible during business hours. Mm, no kidding. Are you a are you a physical phone guy? Like, do you have a, a desk? No. 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 I uh, man, I think I'm just an old person because uh, like. My um, my MDU business, I actually have a U-Link phone sitting here on my desk, a T42S that connects to my 3CX server. And so I use that PBX to, to do all my stuff. And I, I mean, they have really good soft clients for Android and, you know, like my Windows desktop. But I, just, I don't know. I just like having a physical desk phone sitting here. And when a call comes in, I have yet to use the handset on this. I just hit speakerphone and I have my conversations on there, blah, 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 blah. And and do all the things. I don't know why, but I really, well, I do know why, because sometimes I'm uh, not in the room. And so I like to hear this desk phone ring and then I'll come in here, I'll turn my machine on and I'll do whatever. Yeah. I mean, if I had the, the app on my phone, I guess I would feel like I never got away from my desk though. If I had the app on my phone, like, like I would always, I, I already don't. So, um, <laughs> but the, the desktop, the desktop software is really good. So it's like I use Mac OS for my daily driver. So, I'm sure it's similar on Windows, but if I'm listening to music or whatever and I've got my headphones on and my microphone um, and somebody calls, it'll just like lower my call volume or not my call volume, my music volume. And I can just answer the phone call like on the computer without you know, taking my headphones off and like picking up a handset or something. And you can also uh, it's a lot easier to register to multiple accounts because like um, I had a phone number for my business. And then I had a different extension for the day job stuff. And then on the soft phone, it's easy to um, like bookmark all of the different extensions and like get presents for everybody across different PBXs if you're registered to them. So it was just a lot nicer than um, trying to map like the attendant console on the phone to like different companies and different phone numbers and stuff. You just throw it on the soft phone and the, the um, audio quality is also kind of better because they support better codecs with, if the PBX supports it than some of the desk phones do. So I've just been using a soft phone for a long time now. I, I do have a couple Grandstream phones that I used to have on my desk, but I just took it out because I kept taking calls on the computer. Hmm. I don't know, man. I think, I don't know. It's another one of those things where I'm an old person and I like my old people ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, I've gotten so accustomed to it. I don't know. I think it's it's less a functionality thing and more a shift in my brain thing because it's like mm -hmm. when that phone rings, I know it's my MDU business. You know, it's like it, yeah. it's, it's it's compartmentalized for me. And then when you know anything else comes from other facets, you know, I don't know. I just it's 
it's sort of I have this mental shift. So whenever I, whenever this Yealink phone uh, rings and I answer it, I use my um, uh, like help desk voice. Like I even <laughs> like everything shifts Snap when I answer. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's I think it's more just the mental game for me. So yeah, I like having a a physical desk phone. I don't know, old school, whatever, whatever works for me. All right, man. So let's see what else is trucking. There is not much left in this list. Um, the last week and a half. Well, I guess it was most of this week. I was done with it. I just kind of finalized the blog post. But uh, we had a proof of concept come through where Red Hat has this product called Satellite, and it's really like lifecycle management for like your rail systems and stuff. So you can uh, use it as, I mean, basically like an on-site repository, like a repo instead of going out to the internet, right? Like it caches all of your uh, updates that you can have, you know, different, um, different projects. So you could say like, uh, you've got your testing environment and then you've got your dev environment, then you've got your production environment. And so you can move devices through those and they'll have access to different repos, right? That I, that way you have all of your, your packages vetted. So they're always getting the right version that you want them to have. So it's, it's really neat for that. It's kind of like, um, WSUS and windows where it's just a local repository of, of your uh, files, you know, like your updates and all that junk. But also Satellite does some other things, like gives you the ability to deploy machines. So you can have it connect to various things and deploy your machines. And so they were saying, hey, we want to use Satellite to deploy in Azure uh, virtual machines. And then we want to use the Ansible automation platform to perform post configurations. And the idea being, they wanted a golden image for their rail stuff. So, you know, you've got like database servers and web servers and all these different types of systems. And they didn't want to constantly be making golden images for all these different ones. It's a pain in the butt, right? So you just have one image that's hardened ish and ready to go. That's generic. And you deploy that and then, you know, have something come in and do the configuration after that. So I had two big hurdles. One, I've never used Azure before. So I got to learn all about Azure and it's, uh, various eccentricities and quirks. So that was fun. And I documented that along the way and, and ultimately made the blog post about it because I know in a month I'll have forgotten everything. And I'll have to go back and look at it all again. But I had never touched satellite either, right? So here we go. Two, uh, two products that I've never used before. So let's, uh, let's put them in tandem. So that was a, a really fun adventure for me. And by fun, I mean very tedious and long and winding. Uh, but it got done and it was interesting. And funnily enough, I uh, hardly did anything the way the documentation said to do it. So that was another fun part uh, because sometimes things wouldn't exactly work the way I thought they would. Uh, sometimes some commands were completely ignored and I was like, oh, that's great. Uh, I didn't know that was a, what do you call that, a feature? Um, <laughs> but uh, ultimately for me, I found the absolute simplest way to tie all these things together. Um, because Satellite, while it's a great product, sometimes there are a lot of uh, very esoteric things you have to do to make like various functionality pieces work. Um, so man, I sure did go the long way around to make it as lazy as possible for everybody else. So that was really cool. So now, if you've got a functioning uh, Satellite server and uh, uh, Azure environment, you can follow along in about five minutes. You'll be able to deploy and then have it call tower. You know, so it's interesting. 
Satellite has the ability to do like some post configuration stuff in there, but it's a little bit rigid. And I've gotten so used to using Ansible to like do everything yeah. to magic all the stuff. I got it to where Satellite would do the bare minimum, just like basically stand this thing up, hit the power button on it, and then call home. Let Ansible do through it. That's right. So like all this cool right. stuff you're supposed to be able to do with Satellite to do, it's like, no, no, I'm not doing any of that. I'm just gonna let I'm just gonna let Ansible do all of it because I'm thinking it's actually easier um, to let Ansible do all that stuff because in Satellite there's all these different little places you have to go to to make the updates, but in Ansible it's always gonna call back to this one playbook and then that one is kind of the kickoff point to do everything. So it's like, oh well, if I can just go to one place and do everything, I'm just gonna do that. So um, it was uh, kind of my way of thinking in there. And then after I documented, I was talking to some of the other guys. There's actually a fellow inside that's our uh, satellite expert. And he goes, oh man, aside from me, you know the most about satellite. And I was like, oh, please don't tell anybody that. (laughs) 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 I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole with this product. Uh, (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's, uh, there's a lot of knobs and buttons and I don't want to learn how to use all of them. You continue to do that, please. I, I should have turned this over to you in the beginning with. Um, but uh, it's I, I find like when I take on projects like this, what's interesting, like at, at Red Hat on our Tiger team, if you figure something out, you're that guy. So now if that thing comes up, they're like, oh, you should talk to this guy. You're like, blah, 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 go do that. <laughs> so, so now you're the satellite expert number two. Mm, only if this guy <laughs> is like desperately ill. If he's got one foot in the grave, they can call me. Um, but... I've noticed that uh, sometimes like I have to just force myself to learn something new. And the only way is like, yeah, I'm going to take this on. And uh, I did bug him a lot along the way, which he's super patient. Unlike me. So that was really, that was really great. Um, but it's funny because there's so much functionality in satellite. We ended up going down these rabbit holes that were completely unrelated to what I was trying to do. And it's, I mean, hmm. that's just how, per- just to get things to it's work. just the system is so pervasive. We do so many things like trying to talk to him about what I was trying to do. Didn't always like translate to what he knew. So there's a lot of fumbling hmm. around and uh, some of it I had to just figure out. There was no documentation on various pieces. So there was one thing like, um, uh, it's automation platform, whatever you're using like controller or tower, whatever you want to call it you can enable this thing called a callback. So you can basically just hit the URL. Mm-hmm. It auto generates a key. And if something does like a curl command with that stuff in there, it'll check its, uh, its inventory. And if that device is in inventory, well then it'll go ahead and run that playbook and like do all the stuff to it, which is a pretty cool feature, especially when you're like provisioning stuff. Um, but I found out if you just let it, with this custom script command, if you let it just call that, it did it too fast and it wasn't in satellite's inventory yet, so it would fail. So I had to learn to put a sleep in there um, and then mm-hmm. do the curl command. But then uh, I learned that once I started like layering that together, like I would do the sleep, it would never actually run the curl command. And so I had to like figure out what was happening. It would, it would like SSH into the box, it would issue the command, but then it would immediately disconnect um, which would kill the terminal session, which would stop the command. Uh, so then I had to run it in the background and then I had to figure out to add yep. no hup in the front of it so that even if the mm-hmm. terminal got disconnected, it would continue to complete the command. So it was just like all this crazy trial and error of like guessing, what do I think it's doing? Cause there's no way for me to truly understand. Um, cause I can't get to like the development team necessarily to, to 
ask this stupid question. So it was just a lot of trial and error, figuring all these poking and prodding and tweaking and tuning. And oh my gosh, it's interesting though. Like once you get it all working, um, Azure is not that hard to work with. It is kind of pricey. So just like a standard rel mm -hmm. virtual machine costs you about a buck 50 a day, even if it's just sitting there, like me not doing anything with it, just having it provisioned and sitting there, it's like a buck 50 a day to have it online, mm. which I don't know. I'd have to do the math like of number. Of, well, also once it starts actually using compute cycles, it's going to cost more, I'm assuming. So, and once it really starts using storage, it'll start costing more. So I don't know. I see why people yeah, that's where it depends. have so many problems ballparking how much it's going to cost them to put a, a workload out there. Oh, especially like, uh, you know, AWS is like that too, but it's got way more services. But, um, you know, if you're going to be paying that prices, you might as well be on AWS. But some people, there's some services in Azure, like they have a lot of interesting Active Directory type mm -hmm. functionality in Azure to be able to just kind of do that natively. So if you're a Microsoft shop, a lot it makes sense to get those features and a lot of the single sign-on stuff that comes with having a Microsoft online account. Like it's, it makes sense. Um, yeah, that's pretty expensive for just a idle machine, depending on how much resources you yeah. need. And I was going with the um, uh, baseline recommendations, like the lowest level of recommendations they had to get everything to stand up. <clears throat> and also I found out things like, there's a lot of regions with Azure. So there's like a South Central one that's in, it says Texas, which I assume is Dallas. Everything's in Dallas. So I was trying to use that and I was trying to deploy on there and it kept failing. It took me a while to figure out like not all resources are available in all regions. You would think a standard rel seven image would be available in every region, but it wasn't. So I ended up just going with the Eastern region because you know, it's one of the big major hubs and like everything is there. So it kind of fixed those problems. It's uh, just a lot of little uh, weird gotchas that I had to kind of figure out along the way. But I'm assuming there's growing pains with everything. The next one I really need to... I've used AWS, but not nearly uh, as much as I have Azure now. And so I need to uh, pivot and do the same thing with AWS so I can really learn it to the same degree. And I, I tried to ansibleize as much of this as possible. So like my pretty much my entire Azure environment is built off of one playbook. You run it and it, it just builds everything. And then you can, um, uh, it builds most of the VPN tunnel stuff. You know what got me is uh, you can build almost everything as far as the VPN tunnel goes, but they don't expose in the API everything to complete the tunnel. Some of it you actually have to go into the GUI and complete, which didn't make any sense to me. It seems like, I mean, everything would be there, but I mean, it's almost everything. There's like, two extra things you have to do so you know whatever so it wasn't the, the worst thing in the world but i'm assuming i'm going to be able to do the exact same thing in uh, aws although i'm sure it's going to be slightly slightly different or maybe vastly different so we'll see there is some interesting stuff uh i think there's a product i haven't used it in a long time but i think it's called terraform by hashicorp yeah, yeah they're the enemy and yeah, <laughs> I mean, so there's, there's there's some products like that that allow you to um, even uh, AWS's CLI tool that is made by them 
is actually a lot easier to stand up infrastructure than using the massive GUI that's in AWS. So you can basically, um, I think it's a YAML file, which you know something about yeah, those. Yeah, um, and you can pipe it into the AWS CLI and it will just provision all your infrastructure. Um, and I think in that config file, you can specify the networking parameters, the VPN settings, like all of your storage requirements, like all that kind of stuff in, in the file and just use the CLI to like spit all that stuff out. That's cool. So that would probably make it a lot easier to do it through Ansible. Yeah, I've been, um, if I can do, well, I mean, you can never do, I don't know, sometimes you can but as much as I can do in Ansible, I try and do it just so that it's like so repeatable that I can literally, I want to be able to, anything I make, I want to be able to hand it to somebody else and say, hey, these variables at the top, just change it to the words you want it to say instead. You know, like whatever string names you want it to be. And then uh, you can repeat the same process I did. So try and make that uh, as universal as possible. But really, it's also practice for me because... <laughs> Sometimes I'm just right. talking about doing stuff instead of actually doing stuff. So it helps kind of cement all that stuff in. Uh, just really lock it in there. So I don't know. I try and try and stay fresh. Although Ansible's going through kind of a, a refresh here. We're moving to the Ansible mm. Automation Platform 2.0 pretty soon. And so they're kind of changing the way the underlying infrastructure works. They're really making it so that um, most of the automation executes in what they call an execution environment. It's kind of like, I mean, it's just a container. It's going to spin up a little container and execute inside of there, which That's I nice. think is really clever. I mean, I 100% understand why they're doing it, the direction they're going, and it makes a lot of sense. It's just sometimes, sometimes just the way it is now is difficult for me to get network guys to wrap their head around, like right off the bat, you know what I mean? And now we're going to layer in containers, which on once you see it all move, it's not that complicated. It actually is pretty straightforward. It's just sometimes that can be scary for like a keyboard cowboy, you know, that's just used to hitting yeah. the Cisco CLI. That's that's the only kind of things I worry about with stuff like that. But that's that's what uh, that's my job, right? Is to make it as simple to understand as possible and um, relatable, and uh, me to put out content that. Uh, that makes it work kind of universally for everybody. And, and my everybody that I always start with is network guys. So eh, such is life. All right, man, where are we at? Hey, we're at about 40 minutes. So we're doing good. We're vamping, bud. We're, we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> we're getting it done. <laughs> so you'll probably have some insight on this. This was the thing I was talking about. Um, Chad, uh, Chad, Chad was going down the road of Chad. Yeah, he's, he's from New England all of a sudden. Um, it was, he was talking about some of his MDU deployments and how they do it. And I was comparing that to how I do it. And I'm doing it in a similar fashion, but different-ish. Um, and I know I've seen other people do it in various, I just, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat. So what he's doing is he's using the Ruckus stuff. And I, I've heard from everybody, if you're doing yeah. high-density deployment stuff, the Ruckus is really great for that. Their controller is supposedly really good when you uh, enroll all of your stuff. He was saying that gray market, he was getting some of the radios for a really good price. So I was comparing on eBay what I could find for his pricing, and I wasn't finding that pricing. It was. I found pretty close to what he said when he 
mentioned it. Well, I was looking for the for that particular the, the gig model. stuff is what I was looking for. Because oh, okay. I was, um, I want to, I don't know, in some of the MDUs, well, in the MDUs I'm talking to, generally it's new builds and they're going to be in kind of metropolitan areas. And so um, I want stuff that's got higher uplink than a 100 meg port, right? Just so right. I can, uh, one, future proof it, but also like for the most part, like the lowest rate limit I'm putting, you know, like PCQ I'm putting on people is 50 megs. So if I had, you know, two people on an AP, they're going to be maxing that thing out. So I, you know, I'm just, I want something a little bit more oomph on the back end. Mm -hmm. But what he said he was doing is uh, DPSK, which is dynamic pre-shared keys. So the idea being you've got one SSID to rule them all, right? So it's one SSID across, let's say, for example, 50 APs, right? So everybody's connecting to the same one, but each person or each apartment or resident I'm not sure I mean it depends on your configuration but they all get their own password I'm assuming he was saying that inside the unit he's got an AP that's in there so that's gonna be one AP per unit which is what I'm doing now like in the living module mm -hmm. you know generally it's you come in from the hallway you're in the living room and we call those living modules and you've got one access point in there and that's what I'm doing now but his it's got the uh, you know, the SSID, which is it's the only one that's there, uh, but it's got the password that's just for your module. And whenever you connect to that, it'll dynamically put you in your own VLAN. So everybody really nice. who's in that apartment will all get on the same VLAN. So if I connect my phone with my password, I'm on that VLAN and I go to the pool, it's automatically going to connect to the pool and put me on that VLAN. So, I mean, I'm always on my network. So I'm thinking if that's multifamily and you've got, you know, every door off the hallway is one family. You're charging them one bill. They're all going to get locked into your same rate limit, right? Or if they stop paying, they're all going to stop having access to the internet, right? So it seems like it would um, be kind of a cool thing. What I do is in every apartment, that one access point has a unique SSID with a unique password. They connect in. Everything's great. So if they move around, they're not roaming. Right. So that's, I guess that's one downside. They can't just go somewhere else and then be on Wi Fi. Um, but two, um, that's also a positive because I found that, especially mobile devices, they're very sticky with the wireless network they connect to. So if you're walking, you know, into your apartment and it happens to pick up your neighbor's uh, AP and it connects to that, even if it's got like a neg 70, as long as it stays connected, it's going to keep giving you crappy service over to that neighbor's router. But since I'm using an SSID per apartment, it's always going to connect to your AP. So you're always going to get the best performance there. Because uh, when I was doing the FedEx forum, that was an issue we always had there is that phones were just so damn sticky that they would connect to something just as they were walking in. Well, by the time they got to their seats, they were really in a different zone with a different AP, but they could still technically hear the other one. So they'd stay connected to it and service was never as optimal as it could be. So um, I think that could theoretically be something that this could uh, like be an advantage over. Although I don't know how the ruckuses do because I know some APs, whenever they go back to a controller, if they truly are controller based, um, they can tell one AP, hey, stop talking to this guy because this other access point sees him better and so it'll just kind of seamlessly switch them over so that could be I, I and again this is my ignorance of the ruckus stuff i don't know but they 
supposedly have good wireless, good chipsets inside their units. So what, what are you, are you guys doing any MDUs in sort of a similar, no, 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 no. No, but I'm, I'm still building software that would manage equipment in those types of environments. But I mean, you can, most of the, uh, the vendors, you can control RSSI signal and like kick them off prematurely after a signal threshold and force them to reconnect. And usually they'll grab whatever they're closest to. So at least on like like large larger scale capsman deployments or even individual microticks, it's pretty easy to just drop an access list rule in there that after they get past like a neg seventy four or seventy, depending on where your APs are aligned, you can just have it disassociate the client and then it'll reconnect to the closest one to like force that process. Uh, some vendors have some proprietary stuff that allows them to do kind of a seamless transfer. I don't know if they they do something on the layer two side to like synchronize information, uh, but there's some way that they can hand off more seamlessly than just abruptly kicking the device and letting it reconnect. Mm-hmm. But you know, most of the platforms, Ubiquity, Microtik, Ruckus, they all have some sort of mechanism to mitigate that. But the dynamic key is pretty interesting to be able to have one one SSID broadcasting instead of you know hundreds. So I was curious about this. Is like, <clears throat> is this a proprietary? No proprietary technology and so ruckus says that they're the ones who invented uh dynamic psk um, but i don't think they have you know the the lockdown on it because i was doing a little looking around because this I, like i just started looking at this today and it looks like microtik you can add an access list with an individual uh, it allows you to put like a mac address in there as well as a password and then a vlan it'll associate it with and i think you can just leave off the mac address so it will accept a password and stick you on a VLAN. So theoretically, if you had two Pikertik devices and you just duplicated that access list configuration in there, no matter which one they went to, using a specific password would then bop them onto their own specific VLAN, even though they're both connecting to the same SSID. So theoretically... I'm not sure if you can do multiple um, WPA keys. I'm not sure. Like... That's the part know. that's missing. Like on, on like my house, on my Capsman, uh, my devices, the Macs are in an access list to put me on uh, a management VLAN. So you can you can very easily do VLANs per groups of devices and stuff. But um, the way that they're doing that with the DPSK, you get to like just give them a pre-shared key, and anyone who connects on that just goes on that VLAN. Yeah. I'm looking at it on the Microtik stuff. It's interface wireless access list, add private dash pre-shared dash key, and you give them a PSK and then VLAN mode um, equals either no tag or I think you can actually tag them for a specific VLAN. I'll have to, so does I'll that, have to try that if it works does, out. I don't know if that's like a matcher. Like if, right, if it Does that supersede itself? the regular WPA key that you have to put in? And then this is like, but, or is this, is this private? I don't know. Like I said, I just found this. I haven't tested it yet. I'd be curious if it works in the same fashion. So if it does, you could do kind of a rigged version of what the ruckus stuff is doing. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm assuming in the ruck, and I looked in the ruckus documentation a little bit, there's like a central place you go and you add the entries in there. And I guess it just pushes it to all of the APs. Um, because I believe somebody said that even if you lose access to the controller, it'll still authenticate because it's pushing mm. that to the APs. So this would be very similar. You could, um, 
I'm not sure if Capsman would push. I mean, if you put a wireless uh, access list, would Capsman push it to all the APs? It doesn't push it. Um, everything gets basically processed by the Capsman protocol. So if it loses connection to the Capsman controller, the Caps stop broadcasting. Okay. So, so it doesn't like sync state down to them. It's it's all once the Capsman connection comes up. Uh, it dynamically configures the AP, but once it loses that connection, all of the Capsman related config is, uh, it like stops broadcasting the interfaces, go off. Gotcha. Well, you could probably then write a pretty simple playbook that would idempotently push all the pre shared keys out to your devices. So you could do that. You could even mm -hmm. keep it in um, a Git repository, like your list of pre shared keys, so that if you update it, it'll call a webhook that'll call Ansible and it'll just push item potently to all your devices and say, hey, if there's an entry in here that shouldn't be in here, remove it. Uh, if there's any entries that need to be added, go ahead and add them in there. So, I mean, in essence, you could do the same sort of thing, maybe. If it works in the way I think it works. I don't know. That's why I want to talk to Chad. Yeah, see the private... I'm going to look up the private passphrase thing. Yeah. Because that would be interesting because I'm, I'm literally building something to manage... Um, like a unified type system for Microtik specifically. So that would be a very compelling thing to be able to use just as private passphrase. It's on Capsman as well. Yeah. I think Chad was saying With that one of the bonuses too is say the, um, say the power on that floor goes out, if they can still hear one of the APs from below them, even though it's not going to be as good a service, they'll still connect to that, which, you know, can save your bacon, I guess. I could definitely see that because, you know, if I lose an AP out there, um, yeah, that person's dead in the water. And sometimes I've like on the two, four, I've like turned it on, on the neighbors and then cranked up their, their SSID on that one just to kind of rig them through until they can get a replacement in there. So, uh, I guess that's one kind of a bonus, but it seems yeah, like it really depends on your MDU, right? Cause if you've yeah. got a bunch of common areas. Um, I don't know how many people, just like random people, not to judge them, but <laughs> I don't know how many I don't know how many random people would need to access stuff like in their home network, you know, like because the the whole nicety of that is that you could access everything that's in like your apartment or unit, like while you're somewhere else on the property, which could be cool. Um, but that that roaming thing is pretty nice to be able to. Um, do like accounting on like how much data they pushed if you're charging per data. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. It's it's clean to be able to have that and, and you could just have one big SSID for the property instead of, you know, the big nasty list of Wi Fi that you would have if, if they're all turned up really high, the SSIDs. It's definitely a cool feature. But I, I, I gotta look up that Microtech one. Yeah. I would definitely is that bother me. Love to have a conversation with somebody who's run the ruckus stuff just to um, say, hey, if I could make an equivalent over here, what are the things that would be missing? Like, what are the what are the cool mm -hmm. things that the Ruckus with its controller, what kind of power, maybe troubleshooting, what does that give you that you wouldn't have if I rigged something like here? And, and honestly, I, I'm contemplating for my next one that's coming up. I have a potentially one coming up in Houston. So it could be like an 11 story guy. Um, you know, does it make sense for me to try and pivot to something new like this or the system I have working now works really well. I mean, it's really reliable. The only calls I generally get are when kids are moving in and mm -hmm. um, it's generally related to the built-in TVs and I have a message 
that they can listen to and they usually ignore and that's the people I end up talking to. Um, but other than that, man, it, it really generally works well. So I'm hesitant to pivot to something else. Yeah. I mean, uh, what is this? Um, space to use. I'm going to, I'm definitely going to test this, but if, if what you have works, it works. I, I like Microtik and I like the tools that Microtik has. Um, but I'm, I'm sure one of the nice things about a, a controller like the Ruckus one, if it does sync to the device, is like, let's say you were going to run a playbook against all the units, but like a handful of them were offline. You'd have to keep some sort of local database of which ones were successful and like when to try again. But a lot of these uh, controller type software, like as soon as that device is back online, it knows to just resync that config to that one device that just popped on. So it makes it a lot easier to know exactly what state all of the units are in and which ones weren't successful, which is why um, one of the reasons I want to build something is to be able to, you know, schedule those in batches and then be able to easily keep track of which ones are offline, which ones haven't ran that stuff. And then when it does come back online, just go in and fix that thing. That way I know as long as it comes back online, it's going to be in the state that I'm expecting it to be. Mm. Yeah. I'm just thinking like immediately what would I do? I would probably schedule it to run every hour. Since I would write the playbook idempotent, if it didn't even make any changes, it wouldn't. So it would just check all mm -hmm. the kit. And so if that thing came on, at worst case, it would be 59 minutes before it got its update, which is not the worst. And if somebody like called or something, yeah, I don't know. You could always just go and push the do it now button and it would go and do it. Mm -hmm. But still, yeah, the idea of something that's tracking all that, monitoring it. And in my playbooks too, anything that failed, I would have it notify me. Probably in a Slack channel because I don't. I don't know. Who yeah. knows? Something like that. That's why I'm going down the, the TR-069 uh, thing, because then I can kind of like queue those things up in the order that I need them to run. And then when it eventually comes online, it's going to reach out and ping. And then I can send it the first task. It'll ping back the next task until it's ultimately done. And then the server will just kind of be sitting there. And I imagine, depending on a couple people, uh, there's probably going to be a lot of devices going on. So it'll make that a lot easier to not have to worry about. You just, I know that eventually that'll go back and forth. It'll get to the state it's supposed to be in and then it'll just chill. Especially when you've got tons and tons of potential devices out there. Mm, for sure, man. All right, cool. Yeah. I'd be curious. You do a little testing. I'm going to do some testing and then hopefully we can holler at Chad about that stuff too. All right, man. I got one more thing on the list and it's really just, uh, Something I've been doing lately that uh, whenever I'm sitting in the living room with the wife and we're watching something, and I get a little bit bored. I'll just start scrolling through AliExpress. I call it the <laughs> AliExpress black hole because I never quite know where it's going to go. But it's yeah. all consuming. It sucks everything in. So uh, last night I was going down the AliExpress black hole and I got to these very detailed figurines of stuff. And it was like, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger from Terminator. Then I found like this figure, like this series of Back to the Future ones of like Marty on his hoverboard and like Doc and the DeLorean. It's just so bizarre, like just the sheer volume of stuff that's on there. I even went uh, somehow. I was scrolling through and I saw like uh, <laughs> World War Two uh, like model or something, and I was like, "Dude, that's like a Nazi." And uh, I clicked on it, and sure enough. Uh, it started giving me all these suggestions and now AliExpress won't stop showing me uh, 
like uh, Nazi related stuff. There is like even like little mini figures for Legos that have like swastikas and stuff. It's like that is the craziest place I think I've uh, ever been. And yet they will they refuse to stop showing me that stuff. Just so it's, you know, use caution on what you click on because they'll immediately assume <laughs> that's all you want to see from now on. I think it's the way TikTok algorithm works. That must be where they derived it from AliExpress. But I don't know, man. I like go down these. So I went down this one black hole. We were doing like this uh, half day meeting. And so I had to like kind of stay awake for it. And so I started looking at enamel pins somehow. And I found... Uh, <laughs> Let's see, is that one going to show up on camera? It's too close, I know. Let's see. Uh, ah, it sees my face. That's the problem. So, uh, I, uh, Hackers the Movie. Did you ever see that? And that's no. uh, Serial Killers. I've seen a bunch of clips. Charlie. Yeah, Serial Killers Pager. It says Hack the Planet. Yeah. I don't know, just weird stuff like that. And I found one that's like, uh, I'm a big Seinfeld fan. So, here's one that's like George Costanza. Uh, in the episode where he was taking very tasteful, uh, sexy pictures with Kramer. I don't know. Then here's one from uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia of Danny DeVito dressed as like the, uh, I think he was dressed as like the art critic or whatever. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just the most awesome. bizarre stuff on there. I love it. I love going down the AliExpress black hole. And so I'll end up buying like a, a bigger than wish. <laughs> there's I just there's so many, but you know what? Nothing is called what you think it is because they're obviously ripping off copyrights. So yeah. like Harry Potter stuff will be wizard in training, or you know, it's like it's, just, it's not, you, you can't ever. You got to find these circuitous routes to stuff you're looking for. If you're looking for it in general, it just it always makes me laugh of like the descriptions they have on things that are like kind of close or. I don't know. There's like a lot of weird Beetlejuice stuff. It's just I don't, I don't know, man. This must be like a huge market for things. I just didn't know they existed. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. I used to go on there a lot because I was doing, I was gonna like build my own like little smart home thing, and I was trying to find Poe tablets, where I could just like get an Android tablet, but I could um, put a web page on like full screen kiosk mode and just have a POE port and data to a tablet. And so I was looking on there and they had a bunch of options. I don't know how safe they were, but <laughs> I, I reached out for what it would cost for a unit. Cause a lot of the electronics are like, Oh, you want like 500 or you want a thousand units? I'm like, no, I want it. I want one <laughs> to see what they're like. Cause, uh, and then everything is pretty much like two weeks plus lead time. But there's a lot of stuff on there. Like there's, um, I know one guy who does cable systems, and there's a um, a CMTS like head unit that you can get on AliExpress for like half the price everything else is in the U.S. from the other distributors, mm. and it's all the same stuff. It's like the same like two or three companies that build the same um, cable system like head end unit, and so you could just buy them and you wait two weeks, but you get it like a half or a third of the price. You don't get the warranty that you get from the distributors here, but there's, there's lots of stuff you can find on there in the electronic space or telecom equipment as well. Oh yeah. I, uh, so I used to do Alibaba and then AliExpress is like the onesie twosie version of it, which I really like. And I, yeah, I've definitely picked up a lot of electronics components from mm -hmm. there, you know, cause it's, uh, for what I could pay for one on Amazon, I can get like five to 10 on AliExpress. And like you said, as long as you're okay waiting like a couple weeks, maybe three weeks, yeah. 
it's going to get here and it's usually going to be just fine. So that's generally the route I go. I like it. <laughs> yeah. I was just curious if uh, you went down any AliExpress black holes. Cause I enjoy just scrolling for the most random crazy things and then click on that thing and then seeing what suggestions and then click on that thing. And man, I saw like, uh, Somehow I ended up looking at bookends that look like creatures crawling out of them or whatever. I don't know, man. It's like it. And uh, there's, oh yeah, I saw a bunch of figurines for like the uh, 1980s. It, like the made for TV movie. There's like little figurines for that and stuff. I I uh, do not like, clowns freak me out. Like I think they're pretty freaky. Like I'm not really scared of them, but uh, I think if you were going to pick like, genre of horror that is most eerie to me it would be clown related things so yeah so i kind of went down a little rabbit hole with that too yeah usually i'm trying to find specific stuff but uh i've regretted it because i've reached out to the sellers to get more information and then they hound you for like a couple weeks or a couple months trying to get you to buy units and then they leave you alone so eventually i'll wander back on there and look again (laughs) Goes, goes in little waves. Hey, man. Well, I'm all out of everything. you have any uh, anything interesting that you're working on or anything that people need to know about? Nothing that people need to know about, but I am <laughs> I am building a, uh, a desktop application for sonar ticketing, which has been kind of fun using their new GraphQL API. But basically, moving from sonar version 1 to version 2 there's no way to save your ticketing filters. So we have a few hundred tickets at the day job, and it's hard to uh, sift through those and prioritize them if you can't set up like multiple filters for multiple departments to kind of stay on top of it. So they have good filtering, but you can't save any of them. Mm. So every time you go to the ticketing dashboard, you have to like reselect all of the filters to get them back where you want to look at um, so I'm, I'm just basically building a small desktop app that loads all the tickets in and then you can set the filters and save them with a description so you can go through them. What's, uh, what's it running? So it's not in browser, right? It's actually an app. It's a desktop app because, uh, I don't want to like build and host a whole web server with credentials. Like uh, they want to, I want them to be able to literally open the executable, have them put in their, uh, persona cause it won't, it won't let you generate a. API key with username and password. So I'm going to have to show them how to go into Sonar, generate an API key, and then you put it in the desktop app, and then it gives you, it'll give them access to all the tickets under their name. Mm. And then if I need to update it or something, I can just uh, have it do an auto-update and check for a new build or whatever on their desktop. That way I don't have to maintain any server infrastructure, and it's all like local to their machine. And it's a good excuse to like use some of the cooler desktop technologies. What'd you write it in? Uh, it, most of the front end is in uh, JavaScript. Uh, it's like you're able to uh, wrap web technologies into a desktop binary. There's one called Electron, which I started to use, and I didn't want to use it because uh, it bundles Chromium with like every executable you make. So uh, I think like a basic Hello World example with Electron is like 160 megabytes for the executable. Dang. But the, th- the thing I'm using now is um, basically a Golang library, and it um, builds the web assets the si- similar to how Electron does. But 
when I build it currently with a bunch of the stuff that I already have in it and I compress it a little bit, it's about um, 3.5 megabytes. So especially with things like doing an auto updater, it takes like no time on most people's internet to download three megabytes. Um, and it has all this, all the same or pretty close to feature parity. That's cool. And goes a lot nicer than Node. That's cool. Is that going to be something that just lives inside or are you going to make that available to the public? It's just going to be available for whoever. Sonar is probably also going to offer it. I showed support, like how I wished tickets would work using that. And they're interested in like just telling all their customers to use it until they're able to <laughs> add that functionality into their own product. Because they've got a lot of big ticket items they're working on and they don't have time for some of the user interface issues. But um, where I work, most of the people have um, speed problems with ticketing, moving from somewhere where they had five or six uh, ticket filters that they work through every day mm. to having zero. Mm. We should put so, a, uh, a little donate now button uh, on the application. <laughs> <laughs> maybe like a like a github uh sponsors that's that's pretty interesting github so oh i think i've heard of that interesting yeah somebody, somebody can just go to github on your github profile and they can sponsor you and give you a couple bucks a month like patreon so sort of thing yeah but it's just built into github gotcha or you could go to OnlyFans. I could do that, that yeah they dropped porn and then <laughs> subsequently added porn back a week later so yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, they probably would have went under. Yeah, absolutely. Dude, everybody would have jumped ship. Because <laughs> you know that was their probably their profit center. That's how their company was built. And they're like, all right, well, now we're going to do uh, social media and compete with the other social media companies. And then, like, within a day or two or something like that, they're like, uh, we were just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> April Fool's, JK. All right. Good deal. <laughs> all right, man. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's stick a fork in it. So funny. Right. Somebody the other day was like, uh, mentioned the podcast and he said something about sticking a fork in it. And I was like, oh, I guess I do say that <laughs> like every episode. We're done. That's the idea. The food is done. So stick a fork in it. Let's eat it. Uh, Nick, if you want folks to get a hold of you out on the internet, how would you have them do that? Uh, the Little Brothers Wisp Slack group. If you become a patron or... Uh, nick.a at hey.com it's my email all right cool cool and nick is talent programmer consultant although he's pretty busy these days uh but uh unfortunately <laughs> unless you've got something particularly interesting uh or you know you want to know exactly what the uh url is to his only fans just drop him a line uh let's see you can get me greg gregsoul.com where i blog after i figure all these things out and i need to be able to reproduce them at some point I put all of my stuff on there, so it's really for me, but bonus for you. Uh, let's see what else. If you want to get a hold of us, contact us at the Brothers Wisp, or you just hit me, greggregsoul.com, whatever. Uh, also, patreon.com forward slash the Brothers Wisp. You get in there. I, I respond to DMs pretty darn quick, or if you at me on that stuff, or you can hit me on LinkedIn, or whatever the case may be. Questions, comments, let us know if you want to hear something new and interesting, or... You know, what's what I think is fun is when somebody hears us talk about a subject that they have a lot of experience with, subject matter expert, 
and they want to get on the cast i like hearing from new voices i think that's pretty cool so uh, if you guys are interested don't be afraid don't be uh don't be embarrassed uh, be brave get out there and do it you'll you'll be great uh nick thank you for joining me everybody uh listening appreciate you guys and uh We'll see y'all next time. Good comedy giving. If you missed the show already, don't worry. Now I click stop, but I say I click stop.